But as for today, we start a three-week journey through selected portions in Ephesians 1 and 2 on grace. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You know, I made my indelible mark on Chattanooga culture in the 70s and 80s, okay? And by indelible, what I mean is no one there knows who I am, except my dad, and he doesn't count, right? But we were there in July, and we were taking our kids around to see all the places where dad grew up, okay? So we went to Thrill Hill. It's not what you think it is, okay? It's Thrill Hill, Chickamauga Battlefield, The Incline, Covenant College, but, but, but the coup de grace, as I said, kids, listen, you need to tune into the station that dad listened to when I was awesome, okay? KZ 106, okay? Top 40, cutting edge. Listen, when I was in high school, if you weren't listening to KZ, you weren't listening to squat, okay? So, I mean, it was like what it meant to be cool. So we tune in, and then all of a sudden, I, I either didn't know this or forgotten it or whatever, I realized they've changed listening formats on this station, Okay, and so no longer is it hipster cutting edge. It is now classic rock. And so here I am driving around the mean streets of Eastridge. Okay, Van Halen, White Snake, Bon Jovi. Yes, you know it. You love it. Okay, live it. Okay, playing the exact same songs from thirty years ago. And 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 our kids, God bless them. They just they they humor me. They really do. They're like, oh, Dad here you go again. You're so nice and quaint and cute, but come on, move along now, okay? There's nothing new to see here. You know, and a lot of times, I think the same thing happens in church when we start talking about the subject of God's grace. It's so familiar. It's so um, part of our script If we're not careful, we kind of go into the, oh, that's nice. Three-week series on grace. So quaint, so nice, so cute, Pastor Paul. But, but, But can we just kind of move along? There's clearly nothing new here to see. And folks, let me just let me kind of make this a clarion call at the beginning of these of this three week journey and using Ephesians one and two as sort of our springboard. We don't ever, ever move past grace. We don't want to be polite about grace. We don't want to be merely tolerating grace. And God help us, we absolutely never want to be bored with the grace of God. I want our hearts and our minds and our imaginations and our souls to be stirred. I I want us, by God's grace, to be reacquainted in a fresh way with his grace. Does that make sense? I, I, we, we don't want to just ho-hum. We want to tune in to amazing, awesome, life-transforming, soul-shaping truths. And so we're going to be looking at, at this idea of, this, of God's grace as saving us this week. Next week, God's grace changing us. And then finally, God's grace persevering us, keeping us. So this morning we are spinning up a familiar tune, right? If, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, this is in your Grace Greatest Hits album, okay? Ephesians chapter 2. This is so good. 
Listen to it with ears anew, Four Oaks. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Lord, this is your word. It is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we think it's not just true once and for all for us. We were saved by grace. Lord, it's true now. You want to do something through your grace now. And we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes afresh to see amazing, awesome truths from your word. So, Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Three kind of movements you see in this passage. Dead, resurrected, and made right. Let's dive into verses 1 through 3. Dead man walking. It's a a movie semi-based on a true story of a relationship that a nun, a Catholic nun, forges with an inmate who is on death row. And this movie sort of unpacks their their time together and sort of the transformation that's happening in this guy's heart. But they're they're doing it um, with this understanding that the clock is ticking, right? There's, you know, at 12.01 on date certain, the execution date is, is, is is to be implemented, to be activated, and what makes this story so fascinating is that this nun is ministering to this man, knowing that no matter what she did, this sentence of death upon him was irrevocable. She, th- there was no more extending his physical life. There was no more pleas. There was no more clemency hearings. There was no more appeals to the governor. He was literally dead man walking literally living under the sentence of death. Now, if you, if, you, if you get that just a little bit, then you can begin to get what Paul is saying here in verse 1 when he says that you and I, dead in trespasses and sins. He means spiritually, we are, human races, humankind, mankind, we are dead men walking. We are literally living under a spiritual sentence of death. And now Paul could have used a lot of different words at this point in talking about our condition. He could have said, you know, we were wounded in our sins. 
a lot of times we'll feel wounded. We were hurt in our sins. He could have said we were crippled in our sins. Or even, hey, we were, you know, we were on life support, but he doesn't say any of that. See, what, what all those things have in common is that there, there's, there's, there's still some sign of life, however faint in the patient, but Paul did not. He uses the word dead. Do you know what the word dead means in Greek? Ready? It means dead. Shocking, right? Okay. I mean, there is nothing else to it. Like, dead in the morgue. Not sick in the hospital bed. Paul's saying, you and I, in our natural condition, we're born into this. We respond to spiritual stimuli, spiritual truth, about as well as a corpse does to a defibrillator. That's, that's our condition. And, and by the way, it gets worse. Can we keep getting worse? Can we do this? Okay, this is not the only place in the Bible where it says this. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Practically speaking, here's what Paul says this looks like in someone's life. Okay, look, look back at the text in verses 1 through 3. He says, we were walking in sins. Okay, this idea is that we were on a purposeful death march. Now, some of you know I'm a World War II buff, and so I love reading about all things World War II. And when the United States was in the Philippines, and the Japanese not only attacked Pearl Harbor, they invaded the Philippines, and they took out the Philippines, and they captured 75,000 American and Filipino soldiers. And what happened subsequently was one of the greatest tragedies of, of the war, far, far worse than Pearl Harbor in terms of loss of life. But these 75,000 soldiers were marched, forcibly marched, across 60 miles over a five-day period. It became infamously known as the Bataan Death March. And thousands lost their life along the way or once they reached their prison camp. This was not a saunter. This was not a promenade. They were not moseying up the course and the coastline of Manila. No, 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 no. This was a death march. And Paul says, that's, that's our condition when it comes to sin, me and you. We were bound to sin. We were captives. We were enslaved. We were on a certain march of spiritual death. Second thing he says in describing this is the course of this world. He said we were following the course of this world. See, our, our problem is not just that our behaviors are messed up, but our minds are messed up. Okay, and we knew that about some of you anyway, but right, but your minds are messed up. You're following the course of the world, meaning your social value system and culture, your worldview is warped. There, there, there's, a, there's a spirit of the age that predominates every age, and we're all breathing it all the time. Ours is called autonomy. Ours is called freedom. Ours is called the enthronement of the self, to do what we do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. No one's going to tell us otherwise. And Paul says, that's the course of this world. But not only that, look back at the text. He says it all originates 
in Satan. Don't know what sort of images Satan conjures up for you, whether you're thinking, you know, Dana Carvey and the church lady from Saturday Night Live, or, you know, that Satan loves us to have those notions of him because it makes him seem silly and trite and inconsequential, but he's not. Paul says that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers, that at one point we were all sons of disobedience. And just kind of the the coup de grace here, he says, our passions and desires are corrupted. See, this is why moral reform never works. This is why rehabilitation, on the whole, does not work. It does not stick unless it's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, It's, it's like continually scrubbing the outside of a dirty dish that will never get clean. Okay? It, the, the rust and corrosion always comes back. And Paul says, your passions, your desires, they're corrupt. They're, it's no good to reform. This stuff is springing up from your hearts. Are we depressed yet? Okay, are we depressed yet? <laughs> Guys, the fact that the, that the world is broken, the fact that people are messed up, that is not in dispute. But what is in dispute is why. And how you and I answer that question, why, will dictate in large course our solution for remedying it. Great, great little exchange from the Broadway musical Wicked. Okay, and so here's the interplay. Glenda, why does wickedness happen? A resident of Oz asks. That's a good question. One that many people find, and you should love this, confusifying, right? It's very confusifying. Glinda the Good replies before proposing two possibilities. Are people born wicked? Or do they have wickedness thrust upon them? How would you answer? See, the way you answer that, the way I answer that, that has incalculable spiritual consequence. Because it sets a trajectory for our life. On one hand, we want to say, of course it's both. Okay? Of course evil is thrust upon us. But let us not ever forget what Paul says here in verse 3. He says, by nature, four oaks, by nature you were born a child of wrath. And that is not politically correct. That, so all you educators that are going back tomorrow, try that one at your first faculty meeting. Okay? I've, I've come to a revelation this summer I want to share with all of you, okay? That's not popular. In fact, that will get you fired. That, that will, that's all kinds of bad news coming your way. But that's what Paul says. The bad news is that we're a world and people are broken, but the worst news, the worst news, is that we're a people born under the wrath of God, and it's just the way it is. We're all born into it. You can't, you can't change that fact. So there's dead, bad news. And you're probably saying, we've got it. Can we move along now, Pastor Paul? Okay, here we go. Resurrected, verses 4 through 7. If you were given any two words, that if you were to utter them, a wish, so to speak, and those two words would come true, okay, what would they be? 
I give you two words. If you could, if you could utter them, they would become a wish for you. And, and whatever those two words are for you, they will reveal a lot about yourself, right? <laughs> okay. So, so maybe you're a college student and your two words are send money. Okay. If you could add a third, lots of it. Okay. Travel world. Just leave out the preposition, right? Just travel world. If you're in a relationship, marry me. Okay, some of you might wish you had that one at your disposal. Okay, beat an insert name of most hated school, right? Beat that team. Paul says, I've got something better for you. Here are the two greatest words in the English language that you and I could hear after what we just heard. Ready? Look in verse four. But God. At RTS, where I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a kind of a famous urban legend. I like to think it's true, mainly because it makes for a good sermon illustration, okay? But, but, but there, is a, there was a professor there. He was an elderly gentleman. He was staid and Dutch and reformed. And if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, right? Okay, so he was that guy. Wore his three-piece suit to class, nary a smile. But he was my Greek teacher, and, and this man did not often get animated, okay? But, but for one time in his life, he got very animated in expounding this passage. And he kind of got worked up, and, and he said, and, and it sort of exclaimed it and thrust it out and spurted it out in the class. And he says, now for Paul's big butt. Okay, that's what he said, right? Okay. And the class sort of exploded, snickered, Right? He just dismissed the class, okay? That's what happened. But even this stoic man was so excited, even though it came out wrong, he could not obscure the greatest two words of the English language after we read what we just read, but God. Now understand something, Four Oaks. This is really crucial, because if you, don't, if you and I don't understand the scope of the bad news, then, then this is not going to be good news to you. If you don't know the condition of your heart, and I don't mean like our political climate, what's happening in the world and the terrorists out there, but if you're not in tune to what's happening in here, and you know that there is corruption run rampant, then these words may not mean anything to you. But when Paul says, but God, think about all the things that he could have said. Just change one word. He could have said, thus God, because he is righteous and holy. Thus God, because of his glory and his great name and fame. Thus God, because we were born as children under a curse. Because of all of those thuses, I pronounce my verdict guilty, separated from me, eternal punishment, hell. Do you realize, are you in tune? Am I in tune? that that's what it should have said, that that's what we all deserved, that that is reality, it's the controlling reality of our lives. But what does Paul say? But God. Folks, go have a quiet time this week and just do those two words. Okay? But God. Think, think about your, your, your past. Think about your background Think about your struggles. Think about this morning, for heaven's sake, right? Think about last night and just say, but God, 
but God. Now, what does Paul say? But God, three things. He says, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us and by the immeasurable riches of his grace. And so Paul talks about God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, and he says they are overflowing. They are in abundance. Another way of saying is that God is not stingy with you and I when it comes to his grace. God does not hide part of his grace away and keep it for when you and I start doing better. God does not kind of tuck a little bit of grace away, and he's just looking for any inclination in your heart that would move toward him. No, 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 no. You don't get it. But God, being rich, overabundant, to excess. You know, it's interesting that Paul mentions this idea of mercy and grace. Okay, John MacArthur has a great quote about this and how we distinguish those two. Listen to this. He says, mercy pities and holds back. In other words, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But grace pardons and releases. See, mercy withholds God's judgment. Grace releases God's forgiveness. Mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. You know, grace, let's be honest, it can be pretty offensive. You know, imagine just for a second that you're the family of that young girl who was murdered by the man and dead men walking, and you're waiting for the execution. And the governor walks in right before the execution time and says, we're not going to do it. And he's, you know, they're, they're, that's mercy, right? Not giving what we deserve, sparing from punishment. But not only that, he says, but now you get to go free. Now your sins, your crimes are absolved. And, and if we're honest, what would we say at that point? That is what? That's wrong. That is, that is unjust. That is, I mean, he does not deserve that. What has he done? What has he, what has he earned? How has he been rehabilitated? Ah, ah, see? If that touches you at all, now you know a little bit about the grace of God. See, grace is unmerited. It is unearned. It is undeserved. And look at the text. Paul tells us the way that this grace expressed itself. This is wild, okay? While you were dead, no sign of life, what does it say? Paul made us alive with Christ. Let me say, you know, how, how does that work? How, how, how dead does someone have to be, right? Because we went on a trip as a Gilbert family a number of, number of summers ago, and the country cousins, our family in Tennessee, was making their way across the southeast, and they were going to come stay at our house while we were gone. I'm not sure why they would want to do that, honey, but they did, okay? So they pulled up to the house, we were gone, and they immediately detected some kind of odor coming from the premises, you know? And so they got out, and they started looking around and checking all the places you would think them to check. They would check in the bathroom, and in the utility room, in the closet, until someone thought to go check in the freezer, okay? 
And unbeknownst to them, and unbeknownst to us, see, there had been a big storm a week or two prior to that. And Susan had just made her gigantic Costco run, where she bought every piece of meat that they ever had there, okay? Crammed it into our freezer. The power goes out, the outlet is tripped, and that meat just starts to do what meat does, right? (laughs) Okay. And Catherine said as soon as she opened that freezer door, the, the, the smell was so powerful, it was so strong, it was like Lord of the Flies in that place in like a minute, right? Okay, it was crazy. Did not know what to do, so she went, she called the only person she knew in Tallahassee, God bless Scott and Julia State, okay? God bless them, okay? She drove over to Scott's house and said, Scott, will you, can you help us? And so he and Scott and his dad were like cooking on the barbie, like, sure, how bad can it be, Okay. You can ask Scott for his own perspective on this story, but suffice it to say, all they could manage to do was to drag that freezer out to the road and leave it, okay? And, and Pete Butler was the one who took it from there. I don't know what Pete did with it. I don't care, Pete, okay? But all I know is they said that whole neighborhood was wretched, okay? You could smell it everywhere. Of course, by the time we got home, the garbage people had taken it away, and we were like, oh, this is kind of cool. All right, that was awesome. Okay, that's a great story. It's a great sermon illustration. Guys, let me ask you this question. Why, why didn't they just shove the meat back in the freezer and turn it on? Right? With, with, with that, what would have been wrong with that strategy? Well, we all instinctively know these things, right? Because that, that meat is gone. It's dead. It's rotten. It's to, to the core Guys, spiritually speaking, that's you and me. And it wasn't as if God detected a yearning in your heart. It wasn't as if, as if there was some sort of movement on your part that merited God coming and making you alive. What does it say? You were dead, but what? You were made alive in Christ. Now, let me just focus one second on a part of this passage that usually doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think is is pretty cool when it tells us how this happened. This is the kind of stuff we gloss over. This is so cool. Look at this. It says in verse 6 that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. I don't think you think about that. When was Christ raised and seated? 2,000 years ago, right? It was an historical event. But it says in this passage, when Jesus died, when he was raised, when he was seated, your soul, your very person was united with Christ in all of those places. In fact, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks, Ephesians 1 tells us, that that was in God's plan before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, God planned that you would be united with Christ. Before the foundations of the world, even when God knew that you and I were going to be dead in our trespasses and sins, not wanting anything to do with him, with being totally dead to spiritual realities, Paul says, God united your heart in his death with Jesus. He united your soul with Jesus in his resurrection. He united your soul with Jesus. And so what's happening now is God is just sort of un-
folding for you and for me the truth that he determined long, long ago. Guys, that's grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we were even born, Christ died for you. So, how does this become true for you? You look back in Ephesians 2, Paul uses the past tense, right? He says, you were dead. Okay, You once walked. You at one time were following the course of this world. How is... How are you and I? How does the here? Here's the question, folks. How does that grace, which was predetermined, predestined before the foundation of the world, how does that become real for you today? Look in verse eight. Made right. It says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith." See, it's through faith that God takes the benefits of Christ that were accomplished for you two thousand years ago and applies them to your soul today. Here's a, great, here's a great definition of faith from MacArthur. Now, this is important because you could have agreed with every single thing that I've said up to this point, but it will do you no spiritual good unless you understand this. Faith is a God-given conviction that the promise of resurrection life, forgiveness of sins, an eternal heaven through Jesus Christ is true. And that conviction, personalize this, moves your will to ask God for that gift. That is saving faith. See, a lot of people get on board intellectually with dead. They can get on board intellectually with Jesus as a gift and being made right. But if you have not taken hold of Christ, if you have not received, accepted, embraced, taken into your heart this incredible gift, it will do you absolutely no good. I've said, I mentioned this before, but a number of months ago, my dad got, got, a, got a phone call. And the, the person on the other end of the line says, well, Mr. Gilbert, we're, we're here to congratulate you on your inheritance. And my dad said, my inheritance? Are my kids trying to steal my inheritance? What's going on? Tell me, I'm very confused, okay? No, 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 okay? No, no, no. See, see, there was someone years ago that you've long lost touch with that included you in their will. And this person has long passed now, and we're just now coming to realize that you have been included in that. And this was not like a massive amount of money, but it was significant for, for my dad. See, there, there's the plan. At that point, my dad could have said, this is, this is crazy. This is crazy talk, right? Okay, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're saying. You've got, you've got me confused for someone else. But they said, all you need to do is, is we're literally sending you this check and you just have to sign it. Okay, that's it. Okay, just, just sign it. See, the signature is faith. It's a trust in the promise of what is being given. And without faith, this amazing, awesome truth, folks, will do you 
absolutely no good. Now, Paul reminds us it's all a gift. Look back at the text. He says, it's not a result of works. It is the gift of God. In other words, Mr. Gilbert, you have to sign this check to receive this, but understand it can only be signed with this kind of pen. And here's the pen. Thank you very much, right? (laughs) It's all a gift. We totally get that. But that's why Paul says, so that no one may boast. You know, thinking about, let me just have a point of application for us. And maybe you say, Pastor Paul, that's great. Been there, done that. Okay, I, I, know about, I know about this grace stuff. I've received the grace of God. I've placed my faith in God. Um, I've, been, I've been changed by the grace of God. How does this apply to you right here, right now, today? Because I want to connect something that we talked about this summer in terms of rhythms with the grace of God. See, our summer series focused on this idea of rhythms that we want to rest as God's people call us to rest. We want to worship as God's people. We want to recreate as God's people. We want to slow down, actually think, actually have significant spiritual thoughts and be reflective about our lives and our souls. That's what we, you didn't even have to be here this summer. There it is, eight weeks, right? In in a nutshell. But let me tell you something disconcerting that can happen when you begin to do this. And Susan and I were having a conversation about that this week. See, when you begin to slow down, when you begin to pause, when you begin to get a little more reflective and and spiritually minded, things can start to come up. See, God can start to reveal things. I I noticed this week that I was having this kind of low-level anxiety, and I was thinking about this struggle and this sin and this anxiety, and this particular thing, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, with you, I just, I kind of wanted to run from it. <laughs> I wanted to get busy again. I don't like this slowing down stuff, because God starts speaking and revealing things, and that's really, really hard. I don't know about you, I, that, that's, that's my propensity. Here's what I want to tell you, here's what I want to tell myself. Slowing down and having God reveal those things about you That, in fact, is a grace. Because as he does that, he's calling you and me into the light. And he's saying, my grace will not be relevant for you. My grace will not be effective for you until you see your need for it. And so, as you and I are coming into this season... And before we hit 90 to nothing starting tomorrow morning or the next week, we need to pause and say, God, what what are you stirring in my heart this season? What are you revealing about me, about my motives, about my anxieties, about my fears, about my struggles? Lord, you're bringing these things to the surface for a reason. And I believe one of those reasons is so that you can taste anew the grace of God in your life today. You see, if you don't, if you're not in tune with the idea that you need grace, that I need God's grace through Christ, it's probably because we're running so fast, we're running so busy, we're running so anxiously, okay? We don't let our souls taste what God is revealing. Folks, what is God revealing in your hearts today? Do you see that? 
as an evidence of his grace to teach you more about your need for grace. See, that's why when I say we never move past grace, we celebrate this table each and every week. Because we want to be reminded of God's people for our need for him. Parents, you've got a golden opportunity today. I see a lot of little people here, okay, who are like, when's this man going to shut up, okay? It's coming, okay, right now, okay? What a great opportunity to talk to your kids today, to tell them what this is about, what a strange thing that it is that we're doing, that we're eating bread and drinking juice. What is going on with that? Why can't I do that? Why am I doing that? Connecting the reality for them. But guys, this is an opportunity, a season over these next few weeks as we ramp into fall to experience anew our need for the grace of Jesus Christ. Guys, one last word. This wasn't in the notes. I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about certain people here. And you may be, you may be, uh, Pastor Paul, you just don't know what I've done. And um, how far I've fallen from the grace of God. Let me just say this. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, you've never sinned far enough to put you outside of the grace of God. There is hope, forgiveness, restoration, renewal, through Jesus Christ, for you today, by his grace. Let's go before the Lord and just ask and prepare your hearts for that grace as we come to the table. Just a moment or two silently to yourself.